I did more to build your name than mine. Amen. Uh, if you do not have today's faith in action sheet, number three, I encourage you to raise your hand. We'll bring one around. We also have the first two weeks. There's one over here, two, three. The first uh, two weeks are in the back always. Uh, we have been on a uh, short ride here as of recent. And um, as promised, I've sought to give you some uh, messages you've not, in a way that you've never heard them before that are true at a level of depth you're not accustomed to. And uh, I'm very much well aware of the fact that um, I would encourage you to listen and re-listen um, to that end. We took the creation account and looked at it uh, from a different viewpoint than perhaps you're used to and saw something many of you have never seen before. And that's okay. It's an ever-evolving revolution or revelation of the scripture. It should be something that takes place in our life, not something that's unusual. So what brings us, the first message was called originally what God had intended. The second message was crucially what is crucial that we fulfill his original intent. And today we come to sacrificially. We now talk about uh, the new birth. We now talk about what is foundational to us beyond worship and how we live our lives accordingly, how we respond to God. So what is a sacrifice anyway? Uh, technically, I think you would call it a destruction or surrender of something uh, for the sake of something else. The destruction and surrender of something for the sake of someone else, something else. So its purpose is its demise on behalf of another. Um, one would even say the purpose of its death for the purpose of benefit of another. Um, you see this throughout the Bible. Uh, the first sacrifice that was brought um, in the garden, if you notice, was vegetables. It wasn't acceptable. There wasn't the shedding of blood. So animal skins became the first sacrifice to cover our shame, to cover our shame. And um, you see this in the covenant of Abraham and every other covenant cut in the Old Testament. There's always the shedding of blood. You know this. Uh, the Passover and the, uh, the plague in the, of the firstborn in uh, Egypt, there's the blood over the doorpost of the house. And then the tabernacle, the brazen altar. So there's in the biblical, in biblical narrative, and by the way, in other religions of the time, there was the shedding of blood to satisfy what the one who was receiving, uh, present, presenting the sacrifice could not present on their own. And eventually we get to the Lamb of God and take away the sin of the world, Jesus Christ, the ultimate sacrifice. Okay, so we are going to be talking about sacrifice today. There's always a cost involved. Now, I know that grace is free and mercy is free, but if your faith does not cost you anything, listen now, if your faith does not cost you anything, it very well might be that you're not engaging and the sharing of your faith, the activation of your faith at a level that the Lord would have you. In other words, you're below what God is calling you to do if your faith costs you nothing. Uh, to have faith and to follow one whose, whose faith cost him everything, you would think that on our end, to follow him would be to actually have to pay a, a, a price. 
Okay? Let me take it another way. Sacrificial systems of religion, sacrificial systems in life are such that uh, they're always representative of another. It's not that the sacrifice did anything wrong. It's the one who doesn't want to pay the price or cannot pay the price has to rely upon the sacrifice in their stead. It's a representation. It's a replacement. And as I said, there's always the shedding of blood. How was Christ as a sacrifice, what price did he pay? Well, he was forsaken from his own, the presence of his own father. I mean, is there anything more than that that one could pay? And took upon himself the sin of the world. Heavy, heavy price. Now, having said that, we live in a country, in a culture, in a time when, for whatever reason, it doesn't matter the word sacrifice doesn't seem to always apply well to us in life. Um, we, we have, we're on one end of the spectrum in this country to where we are full of abundance and, and, and prosperity. You can say, well, we're in a recession. Give me a break. That, I wouldn't even mention that word in Africa I wouldn't even think to bring it up. We're paying too much for a loaf of bread. I wouldn't even bring that up to someone who doesn't even have a loaf of bread. I mean, come on. We're on one end of the spectrum, and it's difficult for us, it's a challenge for us to understand the word sacrifice. Like, you know, I gave to the church, and um, I gave my tithe. What did you go without? I mean, come on. What's, what, did you, what did you lose here? We have to look honestly at ourselves and say, what are we really missing because of the, our faith? Sometimes what we determine the sacrifice to be is different in different cultures. I would definitely say that. It doesn't mean we're wrong. I just, we, we have to get a perspective is what I'm trying to say. Now, having said that, I have this question for you. And you see the choices there. If you were going to evaluate where you are right now in your spiritual maturity, this will be an interesting question for you guys based on what I shared with you last week. What would your spiritual age be? Like if you're going to use a chronicle age, a chronological age, like infant to 99 or whatever you want to do, what would your number be for your spiritual maturity? Now, because you're 80 doesn't mean your spiritual maturity is 80. Your spiritual maturity could be grade school. Said another way, you could be an adolescent and have wisdom beyond your years, okay? So if you look at these options here, let's look at them. Where would you today place yourself as you self-evaluate your spiritual maturity? Let's look at that. Are you an infant? Meaning what? You're really new to the faith. You're highly dependent upon others to help you grow. You, you're, you're not ready for spiritual meat. You're like spiritual milk, like 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You're, you're just new to the game. You don't really know what's right, and you really need someone to help you with the basics of your faith. There's nothing wrong with being there. That's great. If that's where you are, celebrate it. That's great. You're an infant. You probably... Get yourself in trouble. You have a lot to learn. You don't know much about the scripture. Whatever the case may be, you're an infant. Maybe you're a toddler. Maybe you've like really curious, exploratory. 
You're full of energy. You have more energy to do knowledge. You're out there looking for ways to share your faith. And you're, you're, you might even be a little egocentric, okay? I have a two, two and a half year old granddaughter. I'm not saying she's not perfect, not yet. But I saw a hint of a possibility that she's not perfect the other day. Stay tuned. But <clears throat> are you a toddler? Are you kind of in grade school? What are, the, what are the characteristics of someone in grade school? They're, they're learning how to respond to authority and to work with others, to share, to grow, get building blocks for their faith. Is that where you're at in your walk with Christ? Or is it more of a tween or middle school or adolescent thing? Think about it. Are you in your 20s? You really, really have the ability to reproduce, but are you making disciples? Are you just going a million miles an hour? Are you committing to others and starting to build a, a real life? What, what, where are you, 30s, 40s? Are you in a pre-legacy period? Are you in your prime? Where, or are you even beyond your prime where everything that you do in the latter part of your walk should be to build someone else to replace you or to take your place or to train other people or to disciple them? It's kind of where I'm at. So not today, but over this week, really think about these things and the characteristics that are represented by each of these things and then kind of evaluate where you are in your walk that oftentimes may not be parallel to your chronological age. You understand? This is important. It's important that you're actually really honest about this because it's really nice to know where you are, if, especially if you end up wanting to go somewhere. It's really a problem if you don't know where you are and you really want to go somewhere because you don't really know where to start. Now, if I asked you this question, when you do evaluate what season of life you're in and your spiritual maturity, what was your starting point for your evaluation? Because to be an infant, you have to be born again. What was your starting point? And that's what we're going to talk about today. What does it mean to be born again? Born again. What is that? Let's take just for a moment um, just what it sounds like when you say born again. Sounds very, I was born again in, in 1987. And at that time, when someone said, you must be born again, and I read that out of the Bible, it sounded very 70s to me. You know, it sounded kind of 70s, maybe even latter 60s. It sounded churchy to me. I don't know, a little odd, you know. It is a little odd, I'm born again. And then once you say, I'm born again, you then align yourself with the other person to say they're born again, some of which are kind of weird. Others are not. So now all of a sudden, I'm in this group of people that has a, a, a reputation. Could be good, could be bad, could be weird. Uh, who knows? Like coming, coming into the kingdom and saying, I'm not yet born again, but I want to be born again. As soon as you say that, you, you take with yourself all those things once you step into that, that, that faith place that, I'm, okay, I'm in, I'm born again. And then you go, wow, I'm now associated with a lot of people, a lot of things, a lot of movements, a lot of churches. What is that about? And then what am I going to tell my drinking buddies? That's what I was thinking. Oh, yeah, I'm born again. 
<laughs> I had to struggle with that. I was at my wife's church, her childhood church in Charlestown, Indiana, and Brother Carol was preaching in the Baptist church there. And uh, he always says, keep the main thing, the main thing. I remember that, something about being born again. And he had this Vietnam vet that he invited to come up and sing a song, this man. And he came up and twanged on the guitar and sang this song. And I was like, this is the greatest thing I ever saw in my life. And to everyone else, it was like, eh, whatever. And he, and he sang these original songs. So I, I decided when I got back home, I was going to buy all his cassettes. I mean, this is just after 8-Tracks. I mean, I was on cutting edge, man. So I took all these cassettes and I wrote a letter. Now that I'm born again, I wrote this letter to all my friends that I had spent years doing horrible things with. And I invited them to a Bible study and I put, this, <laughs> I put the cassette in the envelope with the letter. I, can't, I cannot imagine the astonishment on their face when they saw this, like Gary's in a cult, call 911. At my wife's encouragement, I started a Bible study for those people. And um, as I've said before, I would go down in the basement and I'd take my pastor's cassettes and I'd listen to them. And then 10 minutes before the Bible study started, when people were already showed up, I'd go upstairs and basically we'd have to start right away because I'd just regurgitate everything I just heard. <laughs> word for word. Total plagiarism. And one of, the, one of my close friends came to the Bible study out of a deep curiosity. And they go, what's going on with you? And he goes, well, I just broke up with my girlfriend. He goes, I'm really down, actually. And we said, well, why don't we pray that God would bring you a Christian woman for you to meet and start a life with? And he did. The Lord waited about seven eight hours or something like that it was ridiculous. And all of a sudden he met this girl and I saw him on Facebook together with their kids the other day and they've been married ever since. And just a cassette. I was born again. And then when I was born again and we had the Bible study, I got used to this idea I was born again. And my, my brother was living in a bar in uh, Detroit. And I mean that Literally. I don't think he'd mind me saying this. He, he had lived behind a Chinese rec, restaurant in Fort Lauderdale. He had sold, sold nurse, newspapers on the street. He was homeless. And he, sa he said, uh, I, I, can't, I can't stay up here. I'll, I'm going to die. I have to come down. He only had enough money to get to Birmingham, so we had to go pick him up off the, at the Greyhound station. He came to the Bible study, and he prayed to receive Christ. And... Anyway, I started catching on that this born-again thing is different than what I originally thought. It kind of affected other people. I didn't really know what it was. You know, what's going on here? But I was born again. And, 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 I, and I didn't understand the word born, so I focused on the word again. We used to play um, kick the can. Uh, any, any of you video game people know what kick the can is? <laughs> It was literally a can, and he kicked it. I'm not kidding. There's no wires, no Wi-Fi, nothing. And you could go in your neighborhood and feel free of kick the can until even after dark, and no one would pick you up and, and, and kill you. It was great. But during that game, sometimes 
some kid mom would come out in the front yard and say, Jimmy, it's, it's, I, I, I'm trying to be nice here, but it's time for dinner. You got to come on. And then when he came out from his hiding place, someone else said something, and then it was all ruined. We had to start over again. So the guy would go, Ali, Ali, income free. I really knew, I thought he was speaking in tongues when he first did. I had no idea what it was. Ali, Ali, income free. And that meant we're going to do it again. And the word again became very important to me. When I was in basketball practice for tens of thousands of hours of my life, personal training on a team, the coach would say, again, run it again, run it again, do it again. And again became very important to me. And I knew that born again had something to do with having a totally new start, fresh start. And then I kind of investigated the born part. Your memory verse for the first week was this. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. John 3 and 3. Unless they are born of God. And look at the word see. No one can see the kingdom of God. And then, then I began to think, what's the kingdom of God? It's like, um, it's the rule and reign of Christ. It can't be seen it's of God, not of this world. It has its own king. It has its own way of living. It's a righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. It's not about eating or drinking. I had done plenty of both of those. So I knew it was basically different than anything I ever experienced before. And I could see that it was beginning to have an effect on other people. And I began to become very much aware of the power that this status of being born again was and influencing other people. And I just kind of like hold, held on to that. And then verse four, Nicodemus' response to Jesus is this. How can someone be born when they are old? That's not a bad question, actually. He's thinking biologically. And Nicodemus asks, surely they cannot enter a second time in their mother's womb to be born. So basically, Nicodemus is saying, I'm most familiar with this, and I'm not familiar with that, so I'm just going to ask the question, what's going on here about being born again? And Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Hmm. I kind of got the water, the water breaking, I kind of got the biology part of it. And then what does it mean to be born of the Spirit? That, that, that kind of got me. What Spirit? The Spirit that broods over creation, hovers over the surface of the deep. The Spirit that's there, present, accessible, purposeful to be born of water, but also to be born of the Spirit, where, the, where God is Spirit, and those that worship Him, worship Him in Spirit and in truth, that there's a presence, there's a role, there's a purpose to this part of God, that those born of water have to be born of this kind of thing. It's a, the Spirit that wells up within you as rivers of living water, and it's the Spirit that lights upon you like a dove. I began to see that this influence, that this born-again status that I was in was somehow having in the lives of other people who I easily thought would have rejected everything that I stood for at that point, came to the conclusion that it had nothing to do with me and everything to do with not being born of water, but being born of the Spirit. When I come over to you, see you guys the other day, the only thing worth the time together was that which was done in the Spirit. There's nothing else worth, there's nothing else, there's not worth anything. It's only what happens in the spirit. The spirit that wells up within us, the spirit that, that gives us gifts, the spirit that uh, clarifies things for us, the spirit that convicts, the spirit that clarifies, that, the spirit that um, 
that counsels us. That's, that's all there is. I mean, it is a status of do-over whereby the do-over isn't really relying upon you to do it over. It's God doing it over with a new chance with one ounce of faith is all you really need and you're gonna be born again and then he's gonna help bring you from infant to toddler to grade school to adolescent. It's a powerful thing. I got beyond the oddness of it and the vernacular and the verbiage. I got beyond all of that. I began to realize, oh my gosh, the spirit of God is using this again redo through me, in me, to change things I couldn't have changed in a million years. That was revelatory. I, I mean, I really got into it. I, Wow. Then I began to think, how did I spend the majority of my life resisting that born-again rebirth? How did I do that? What, what made me so resistant, so questioning, so suspicious, so accusatory? What made me mock? What made me mock that? On what basis did I have in my life to mock being born again when I had zero credibility in my own eyes, let alone to people around me? I had no idea how to live life. But yet I mocked it. That, that, that really, really got my attention. I was mocking something and people that were far better off than I had ever dreamed of being in my current state. I over-intellectualized it. I complicated it. I did any and everything I could to justify the fact that I wasn't born again. And because I wasn't born again, I was in the right place. I could argue or sell you on anything, frankly, including the absurdity of being born again. Why didn't I welcome such a birth? Why didn't I ask for such a birth? I had no idea the effects that would follow that decision of being born again. Then I read something written by King David, a guy I never met, didn't know much about, but all I knew is he was a man after God's own heart. I was a boy wanting to be a man and I was seeking something and I figured it might as well have been God's own heart. So I read these words, the Lord is my light in my salvation. By this time, I was, had figured out that King David didn't have a Christ on the cross to, to look up to. But he knew he was light and he knew he was his salvation. Whom shall I fear? He knew he was hated by many, maybe wanted to be killed by armies of people. He knew that, but he knew that God was a light. God would save him, salvation, spare him the attacks of his foes, that God would protect him somehow. He saw that. He said, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. Here's a man whose every enemy could have been a stronghold on him, could have just restricted him down to nothing, could have just made him worry and anxiety and fear and timidity every day. But he goes, no, those people aren't the stronghold. God's my strong, God has a stronghold on me. He said, whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it's my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. I was like, wow. Man, this guy has so many reasons to look over his shoulder every night, sleep in a different bed every night, go to a different castle every night. And he's really not worried about it. One thing I ask from the Lord this only do I seek, colon. All right, when you, 
when you say to me, and you're authoring, you're pinning, you're, you're, you're scribing out scripture and writing psalms that are gonna be recorded in the Old Testament. And God's helping you write those songs. And I know that when I read it. I'm gonna have a course coming up. Some of you are gonna join me on a Saturday on how to better understand the Bible. And it'll be available online. It's gonna fit in with this. If you say the one thing, as soon as you say one thing to me, you got my attention. Let me tell you why. All I'm trying to do the rest of my life is one thing. One. And every time I'm doing two or three or four, I'm costing myself the one. You saw City Slickers when uh, Jack Palance raised up his, his finger. He goes, there's only one thing important in life. Find out what that is. And realize that every other thing is less important. But when David said, one thing I ask, that's it. He's already established that the Lord is his salvation. So in our context, we're already saved, okay? Once you're born again, there's only one thing you ask from the Lord. I found that interesting. He's gonna, who is this guy that's gonna boil down everything into one thing I ask of the Lord over the million, millions, and millions of things that are asked of God every day by people of faith and non-faith? What would that one solitary thing be that I would ask of the Lord? And this only do I seek. He's laid down everything. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Now for us, that's already established. If you're here today or if you're listening today and you're born again, if you're not, we'll get to that in a minute, but if you're born again, you are gonna dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of your life. Although, what does that mean for you now? That still has to be determined. And then he says, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. I encourage my daughter to find a life verse. This is what she picked for herself. Well done. Though we stumble, this is our one thing we come back to. This is our rock. This is a guy who's now saying the only thing that's worth doing in life, the number one thing, is to seek God and gaze at his beauty. Now you know why I've been hammering you for two weeks about the number one thing in life is not prayer, but worship. That's it. Gaze on the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. And he will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Wow. Salvation, he said the Lord is my salvation, means to put a hand down, grab, and pull out of darkness or pull out of drowning, pull out of water to save, to save someone from despair. And, and God has proven to David that he's a stronghold. But I say all of this to say this. You're used to hearing stories and messages. If you want to, you go online. You can find millions of them on what does it mean to be born again. God bless you with that. What do you really need to hear? What do I really need to hear? You see, you can actually have something as precious 
as salvation and not know what to do with it. That's a tragedy. You can have be afforded privileges of having being born again and never take advantage of the privileges. That's, that's horrible. That's one of the most horrible things you can do in life because salvation is at the pinnacle of the most valuable, precious thing there is on earth. And for all eternity, I might add, and if we don't use it properly, what have we done? We've misused the most precious commodity we have, our salvation. Now we're getting to where we need to talk. Some months ago, I went to Armenia and had one of the best ministry things ever, I've ever had in my life. And back here, this roof was being put on this building and all these other buildings here. There was, I'm told there was like 40 people here hammering like a Disney movie in unison, dancing, having a siesta in the afternoon, eating lunch. It was a rhythmic musical, uh, Broadway musical of collaboration of, of doing this whole roof in less than a week. And I thought, man, I would have liked to have seen that. So what I did is I hired the same company to come put a roof on my house. And 15 to 20 people, 18 sometimes, showed up at my house. And um, they were like ants, musical ants. And they were... <laughs> They were walking on the ridge line of this roof. It's a high roof, and it's steep, and they're jumping from thing to thing with things on their shoulder. And I go, these people are unbelievably gifted. Not a lick of, not a lick of English. So, as is my wife's custom, uh, it doesn't matter if we have two guys working on a Saturday or we have one, we're, she's going to cook them lunch. And it's going to be Mexican. And the first time, they might say it's good. Second, third time, it's better than the genuine Mexican soup and lunch they came up on. I'm telling you, the girl can cook. So I said to the foreman who spoke English, to these, I said, Saturday, we're having lunch for your crew. One o'clock, is that good? One o'clock, can you break it one o'clock? Yes. How many guys are gonna be here? Just plan on 20. So sure enough, 10 minutes to one, I said, all right, it's time to come in. They're all still up on the roof working. And I said, no, seriously, the soup's gonna get cold. You gotta come in. They all came off the roof and they're all, I'm up there going like this. They have no idea what's going on. No one told them about lunch. They're all up there and they come down and they're all standing in the driveway and they head out to the field for lunch. I said, no, the lunch is inside, inside. Here, go through the garage, follow me. We, it took, a, it, there was 21 of them, people at lunch. They get it, they're sitting in the kitchen, they're sitting in the, in the living room, they're sitting in the dining area. Finally, gather all these people together, they're all sitting at the table and they're all feeling as awkward as they've ever felt their life. No one knows what to say. One guy's gotta go to the bathroom and he's afraid to say anything. He's, he's headed for the woods. And we're dishing up this, oh my gosh, it's incredible, uh, soup. I'm serving it, putting it on the tables, we're all looking at each other, and I said, okay, can I pray? And I prayed God's blessing on every family. On every marriage and every girlfriend, every child, every grandchild. I prayed for their safety, I prayed for their home, I prayed for their coming in and going out. I prayed the paint off the wall, I had to repaint the kitchen. And I said, uh, my wife and I, 
are deeply appreciative for the pride that you take in your work and the fact that you're here making our home a better place. Thank you so much. And there was one guy who translated. So this took, well, the soup's cold by this time. It was a long prayer. Anyway, <laughs> the translator is translating that. And then I say, manja, which is Italian. No one knew what that was. <laughs> Sounded good at the time. But anyway, they all started eating. And I looked over at the translator, and here's what he, he was, he was a little shook up. It's not that he asked everybody there. It's not that he got a consensus from everybody. Listen, he already knew the consensus. He said, sir, many of us in this crew have been roofing for a long time. And this is the first time anyone ever invited us into their home, let alone to have a meal. I said, so, I said, sir, I said, you're welcome in our home anytime. And then I got to thinking about it. How is that possible? That can't be right. How can a roofing crew who literally has done thousands of roofs in the Bible Belt, in North Georgia, in Highlands, in Cashers, in Sapphire, in Middle Georgia, how is it possible that they've had a job after job after job and not one person has invited them in for lunch? How is that possible? And the only, the only conclusion I could draw was some mathematical anomaly that of every job they've ever had in the Bible Belt, in Baptist North Georgia, they never had a Christian customer? Is that possible? He looked at me like, what business do you have of inviting me into your home? Look at us, we're dogs. We're Samaritans. Not one Christian customer ever? I couldn't believe it. But there it is. Are you born again? Because if you're born again and you don't take advantage of the greatest part of being born again, then you're only born again as a parenthetical placeholder until you die. That you think eternal life starts when you die and you're just here parenthetically waiting until in your born again status, which by the way, some people are questioning, and you don't, you're not taking advantage of the very, the very reason you're born again on this earth. What is it? And I finally learned what it was that day. They didn't know that they had access. They thought their job was put a roof on a house. I thought their job was to have soup in a home. And those two philosophies conflicted as I looked at those men. And it made me want to cry. It really made me want to cry. 
See, in the garden, when sin, original sin came, the garden was closed and they no longer had access. They didn't. When the tabernacle came, they could be around it, but only one dude had access. No access. When the Romans had no access, the Gentiles had no access, the Samaritans had no access, women had limited access, Jewish men had limited access, there's only one dude who had the full access to the whole program, one day a year. So I I began to think, the most important one thing you can do if you're born again is seek access that's been given to us by the blood of Christ to the Holy of Holies. What else is there? And out of that access, I mean, what's accentuated on the cross, my friend? Yeah, you can say it's the blood, the stripes, the wounds, the blunt force trauma. You can say it's the the forsakenness. You can say it's the the nails, the nine-inch nails. You can say all of those things. But don't miss the most important part of the crucifixion. There was an earthquake and the temple came down and the veil was rent. Access. We have access. Do we take advantage of the access? Does does our worship lead us into the access to the presence? Do we have permission? The gate's not closed. The garden's wide open. Everything's open. We have access. Come boldly to the throne of grace. David had it right before the thing ever happened. I'm seeking him. I'm seeking him. I'm seeking him. A person born again who doesn't seek the access, the presence, the joy, the person, the intimacy with the Lord, can oftentimes, glad you're sitting down, be equally as effective to those who are not born again in this world. Access. Access is something we have to steward. It's something we have to manage to magnify God in our born again state. I'll give you an example. My grandmother, she's in heaven, I know that. Because of something that happened one night, I I don't have time to go into it. But for her life, she had a family Bible. The human family Bible is sat on the third or fourth step depending on where the Christmas decorations were parked temporarily before they went up to the attic. She sat on the third or fourth step to the attic. It has a certain smell up there. I knew what it was. I used to go up there and just look around and get semi-freaked out. But I always passed the Bible on the steps. What was the Bible? Well, it was really, it was a book in which, in the pages of the book, certain milestones representing the human family were stuffed in the book. Uh, newspaper, yellow newspaper clippings of engagements, birth, birth announcements, um, a baptism certificate. Um, there were things in there that, that, that were sort of spirit obituaries made it into the Bible. The Bible was a file cabinet is what it was. It was a Hewan's file, file cabinet. And um, 
even graduations made their way in. And the book was supposed to be that wide, but by the time the family grew, it just grew like this, just stuff stuffed in there. And I thought, okay, there's a Bible, but the purpose for its use is being missed. Could have had a shoebox. There's a Bible that was like a shoebox. It collected newspaper clippings. If you're born again and you don't access the presence, you're like that Bible, a shoebox. Um, let me give you some other examples. Do you have some things at your house that are really precious, like expensive things? I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Like your china, two generations old, it's in a box somewhere, maybe in the back of the pantry. Where you pull it out every once in a long while for a special occasion. Grandma's silver, your great-grandmother's wedding ring. You have them, limited usage, limited. Uh, you have... Um, we have some of that at home. I don't say anything about it, but fine. A fur coat, maybe. You have a collectible car. You don't really drive. You just put it in the garage. All of those things are like, um, we have these things, and they're valuable, so we keep them. We have our third house in Miami, a second house in Phoenix. We have another house. We never go to them, but we have them. Okay. I'm born again, but I never really use the purpose of being born again in my born againness to maximize the stewardship of being born again. Same kind of thing. My wife and I were in Seaside, uh, Grayton Beach, Seaside 30A over there one year, many years ago, and um, we couldn't afford to pay attention. And we looked in this window of this, uh, you know when you go on vacation, guys, you gotta go to, you gotta go to the gift shops. It's just part of it. You just mark it down and do it, right? There was some china in there called matchware. Anybody know what matchware is? It's, a, it's all white dishes and authentic pewter is put around the rim of the dish. You can't chip the dish. You can drop the dish. You can throw it across the yard. The pewter is going to protect the dish. It's going to last the rest of your life. And it costs an arm and a leg. I mean, it costs an arm and a leg. Well, let's put it this way. You have to buy it at Old Edwards. Okay, now you understand. <laughs> Salt shaker. It puts you back. So, once, so I thought, one year, there's two things I want to get my wife before I die. And I was so broke, I couldn't afford the thought of either one of them. I want to, I want to get her a horse. I'm working on that. And I want to get her some matchware. But it's expensive. I mean, it's real expensive. I dropped $2,500 on matchware one Christmas. I wasn't in the doghouse until June. That's not funny. <laughs> but the thing about matchware is you can use it every day. We have open access to it. We don't have to hide it. It's right there in the kitchen. You want one, you get a... Although, when people come over for dinner, you can't even put it in the dishwasher. So it's a labor-intensive gift. You pick up a, one of our matchware bowls, I'm looking at you. You don't know I'm looking at you, I'm looking at you. And if I see that thing falling towards the ground, I'm diving for it. But we've allowed, I've allowed that one luxury in my life for my wife to have that. It's important. It's precious, but it's used every single time that we have pasta or soup or whatever. 
It's not a special thing. Being born again is that. It's accessing by way of the blood that was sacrificed on your behalf the presence of God on a moment-by-moment, day-to-day basis. That's what it means to be born again. The earthquake, the temple destroyed, the veil rent, the it is finished, the garden's open, everything's open, the restaurants are open, everything is come and dine, come and feast with Christ. Now, look at the verbs in Psalm 27. We'll finish up. Seek, dwell, gaze. Sometimes you'll understand the passage better if you just look at the action verb. Seek, dwell, gaze. It's a tragedy. In some ways it is. In other ways it's a beautiful thing. Churches all over this country are giving altar calls and people to sing it just as I am. And we're asking people to give their life to Christ and be born again. But if it only stays there, then we have a faith that's worthy of putting in some sort of box, sticking in the closet. We pull it out at Christmas and Easter and enjoy it. And that doesn't help a nation. You guys, we talk about this often. The reason you're in the program and you stay in the program It's not because of what happened in the third week when you gave your life to Christ. It's the 52nd week when you walk out of there knowing what to do with it. So I ask you this question. Hey, what do you think your spiritual age is, your spiritual maturity? What would you say? You can be an infant, a toddler, a grade schooler, a tween, an adolescent, middle schooler, high schooler, college, 20, 30, 40, 50, it doesn't matter. But what if you're not an infant? What if you never have been born again? Not only do you not have access, you don't have the possibility of access until you are. It's one thing to be born again and not enjoy the access to the Father through the Son in the Spirit. To not worship, to not pray, to not glorify Him in word and in deed. That's one thing we can work on. But to not be born again, to not have access, to not have anything to steward, to have no again. I mean, anyone not born again has to realize that they have a need for, and again, a redo. Who doesn't have a need for a redo? We live in a world where sin is becoming so acceptable, so normal in everyday life, so accepted and so appreciated, uh, it's, it's it's becoming some glorified diversity that we can sin and sin and sin and sin. We don't have any need for an again anymore. We don't have any need for a new birth. Man, in a way, I just want to say before I ever got born again, I was so convinced that I had sinned and sinned and sinned and sinned and sinned that I knew I had a need for a God who could give me an again. 
Listen to the words of the song. You're going to receive an invitation to be born again. And then we're going to pray that those who are are fully taken advantage of the access that we have. You're the king's kid. There's an invitation and lunch is on the table. How could we turn down the access time and time again? Listen to these words. If you're here today and you're not born again, maybe you will be in just a few minutes. Amen.